Hi, this is Sean Fenske, Editor-in-Chief of MPO Magazine, and I'm here with President of Vascular Sciences, Mike Drews, for another episode of Mike on MedTech. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm well, thank you, Sean. And uh, so today we're going to follow suit with the, the pattern we've been following, which is to mirror an aspect of my editor's letter, this one coming from the June issue of MPO. And in that one, we were kind of celebrating the fact that MPO was uh, the June issue was its 15th year anniversary. So in, in the spirit of that, uh, Mike put together 15 tips for getting new products through the FDA. So we're going to try and run through as many of the 15 as we can, but we may only end up focusing on some of the, the more significant ones that, uh, that uh, you know, well, let's just get into it. Mike, I'm going to go right into it. The first one, this is a poker game in every sense, meaning getting the product through. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, it's a great place to start, Sean, and by the way, congratulations to you and the others at MPO on reaching your 15-year anniversary. That's quite an Thanks. accomplishment in today's world. So in terms of a poker game, I describe the entire relationship between the company and the FDA very much as a poker game. And what I mean by that is just because somebody understands the rules of poker doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a good poker player, and it certainly doesn't mean they're going to win the game. I want to do everything that I can, legal of course, I don't want to be wearing any orange jumpsuits in order to win the game. So reading the regulation and understanding what the regulation says, obviously that's important, but that's not enough. Just because you read a book or just because you read a hundred books on the rules of poker doesn't make you a good poker player. That's exactly what I mean by uh, this is a poker game, Sean. Okay, great. The next one, consider regulatory from the beginning. I assume you're, you're referring to the design stage. That's correct, Sean. From the very beginning of the, uh, of the product development process, of the beginning of the design stage. Um, uh, simply put, you know, as uh, my background is in biomedical engineering, as you know, I started out in this business as an R&D engineer. It's never too soon to involve regulatory. Even one nanosecond after you come up with the concept of your new device. I don't want to go so far as to say that it's too late, but you should definitely be considering uh, regulatory from the, from the very beginning or as early on as possible. Because simply put, the earlier a company gets somebody like me involved in that process, the uh, more advice I can give them to, uh, on, the, on, on choices that they might be making for the product design that would minimize their regulatory burden later on. And uh, it's kind of like, you know, when you're doing construction, it's a heck of a lot easier to move walls around before you build them. Uh, once you put the walls up, you can still move the walls, but now it becomes much more time-consuming and expensive. So begin, uh, uh, consider regulatory as early in the, in the design and development process as you possibly can. Okay, great. The next, uh, next tip that you, you gave was uh, competitive, having to do with competitive regulatory strategy. Why don't you explain that a little bit further? So a competitive regulatory strategy is a phrase that I coined a number of years ago. Uh, basically, here's the way I like to describe it. Most people think of competitive regulatory strategy as how did your competitor get your device on the market before you? And to me, that is absolutely not competitive regulatory strategy. That's nothing more than simply play, uh, following the leader. And quite frankly, anybody can do that. Competitive regulatory strategy to, means, to me means much more. Uh, and here's, here's what it means to me. 
Um, bringing a medical device onto the market here in the United States or anywhere around the world, quite frankly, is easy. I do it all the time. The challenge is how do you design your regulatory strategy such that you don't just get your device on the market, but at the same time you create a barrier to entry to your competition. In other words, you make it more difficult for your competitors to follow in your footsteps. Let's be honest, Sean. Most people and most companies, they view the regulatory process as nothing more than a burden, a set of hoops or hurdles that you have to jump over in order to get your device on the market. And I'm sorry I don't see it that way at all. If I have to jump through these hoops, so be it. But what can I do to position these hoops to make it more difficult, not impossible, but more difficult for my competitors to follow in my footsteps? And at least in my 25 years of experience of playing this game, Sean, most folks, including most regulatory folks, don't even think in those terms, but I do. Great. Uh, the next one we have is uh, use label expansions to your advantage. Yeah, uh, label expansions are something that we use very, very frequently in the drug world. In the device world, not so much, although I use them all the time. And here's the idea. Um, it's much easier to bring a device onto the market in its, uh, what I like to call, in its dumbest down configuration, in its simple configuration, both in terms of design and especially in terms of labeling. Get it onto the market that way first, and then go back to the FDA later and add more and more bells and whistles uh, in the regulatory vernacular. It's what we call a label expansion. So for those in the audience that are baseball fans, Sean, I like to use a baseball metaphor. It's the difference between swinging for a home run versus swinging for a single. Everything else being equal, I would much prefer to swing for a home run. I would much prefer to get my device onto the market with all the bells and whistles, with all the label claims I possibly can. But that's like swinging for a home run, and when you swing for a home run, you have a higher likelihood of striking out. So I like to give companies another option. If they don't want to swing for a home run and take the risk of striking out, then swing for a single. So the batter comes up, they get a base hit, they run to first. The next batter comes up, they get a base hit, the runner moves from first to second. At the end of the day, you end up with all of the runners getting all around the bases. It's just a matter of do you do it all at once uh, or do you do it as a series of baby steps, i.e. label expansions. Uh, there are, of course, advantages and disadvantages to both. But especially for very, very new technologies, that's, be that's become the best way, at least that I've been, been able to come up with, to get uh, totally new, to totally novel technologies on the market. But I use the same strategy for Me Too's as well. Okay. Sounds good, and I love the baseball uh, metaphor. It definitely works well. The next one is uh, no submission should ever be rejected. Yes. Once again, Sean, uh, and we've... Uh, I'll share some statistics with your audience. 75% um, of 510Ks that are submitted to the FDA today are rejected, um, and of those 75%, 85% are rejected specifically because of substantial equivalence or the lack thereof. And uh, for those in the audience working in the uh, Class 3 in the PMA universe, 89% of PMAs are rejected first time out of the box. They result in wow. what's called a major deficiency letter. I find that to be embarrassing as an industry. 
regrettably, and it pains me to, sh- to say this, uh, Sean, but um, uh, we have devolved, not evolved, but devolved as an industry to the point where we are essentially treating, our, uh, treating the FDA as our elementary school teacher. In other words, here's my homework assignment. Will you please mark it up and give it back to me? And I don't know, Sean, maybe I'm getting old, but that is not the way this game is supposed to be played. There's absolutely no reason why any submission, any 510K, for example, should be rejected, especially because of uh, non-substantially equivalent. Um, it's a total amateur mistake. It's a total rookie mistake, since you like the, the baseball metaphor, Sean. Um, mm-hmm. And it can be very easily mitigated, if not totally avoided, by taking your product to the FDA in advance of the submission uh, via a pre-submission meeting or a pre-sub or something else, and make sure that everybody is on the same page, pulling in the same direction. And not surprisingly, I think the next three all tie into that. So the next one is communicate early and often with the FDA. That's exactly right, Sean. As you and perhaps some in the audience know, I work not just as a consultant for for industry, but I work as a consultant for the FDA as well. So I see a lot of these issues from both sides. It never ceases to amaze me uh, how many people come into the agency and basically ask, what do we do? How do we get our device on the market? And in my opinion, that's a terrible uh, strategy for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, uh, So I will communicate much more frequently with the agency than any regulation will ever require me to do. But there's a caveat to that. Remember, as I just said, a lot of people will go to the agency and ask what to do. I never do that. Um, My regulatory mantra is tell, don't ask, lead, don't follow. In other words, go down to the FDA long in advance of your submission, as I said, in a pre-sub or something else, and say, here's our device. This is what it does. This is the way that it works. We're going to bring it onto the market as a 510K, and here's why, or a de novo, and here's why, or a PMA, and here's why. We're going to um, do the following testing on our device, uh, and here's why. And by the way, another of the many things that differentiates my approach, Sean, is I don't just justify what I'm doing. I also justify what I'm not doing. So using the testing as an example, I will say, here's the test that we're going to do and why we're doing them. But oh, by the way, here are these other tests that we're not going to do and why we're not going to do them. In other words, I want to take away every possible opportunity that FDA has to disagree with me. Another one of the most common reasons why submissions are rejected is because the company does certain tests, they submit it to the FDA, and FDA comes back and says, well, what about this other test? We would like you to do this other test over here, which you have not done. And I see this happen, Sean, time and time again, including from some of the largest medical device companies on earth. And regrettably, I just have to laugh because this is just such a rookie mistake. It's such an amateur mistake. It can be completely uh, uh, avoided by taking it to the agency in advance. All right, perfect. We, and uh, like I said, the next one ties in with this line as well. Don't treat the FDA as your enemy. Yeah, uh, again, Sean, um, this, is a, this is a problem with our industry. So many folks, certainly not everybody, but so many folks, they treat the, the FDA as their enemy. In other words, what's the minimum that I have to do in order to get you to sign off on whatever it is that I want you to sign off on? And I just, you know, as a, as a, as a responsible biomedical engineer and a regulatory professional, I'm just so 
troubled by that. Um, and the other thing that, that bothers me is why the heck do so many companies treat the FDA as their beta tester? In other words, in virtually all companies, the first people to see their submission is outside of their own company is the FDA. And to me, this makes absolutely no sense. So one of the best practices that I've developed over the years, uh, and I do this a lot with companies, before the company goes down to White Oak to sell FDA on whatever it is that they're trying to sell them, um, they'll ask me to come in to put my FDA reviewer hat on temporarily to read through their submission or sit through their presentation. And if I can be a bit blunt here, Sean, bash the heck out of it. Because the idea is if they're going to make a mistake, better for them to make a mistake in front of me. After all, what do I count? You know, I don't matter. As opposed to down in, uh, in White Oak at FDA where it really matters. And uh, for those in the audience, Sean, that are familiar with, uh, with quality and with the design controls, this, is, this idea should not, be, should not sound unfamiliar at all. This is exactly the concept of the independent reviewer. Only in this particular case, we're not talking about the independent reviewer in an engineering sense. We're talking about the ind independent reviewer in the regulatory sense. So this is uh, something that, as I said, very, very few companies do, but I think it could really uh, uh, save you a lot of time and problems down the road. You know, I don't want to get sidetracked, but it sounds like the advice I, I heard during a session at a conference uh, on cybersecurity where somebody simply asked, you know, how do we address cybersecurity? And the response from the panelist was, hire a hacker. You know, kind of the same <laughs> idea. Yeah, I love that advice, Sean. It's actually, it's quite good advice. And I think it's an appropriate metaphor here because I don't want to go quite so far as to say that if you can get something past me, you can get it through the FDA. But, you know, you, 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 you get the idea. So I do love the hacker metaphor. Right, right. Okay, and, and the last one of the first group, don't be the regulatory police. Yeah, this is another problem that I see. Let's be honest, Sean. Uh, in many organizations, in many medical device companies, the regulatory folks are, are referred to as the police because they're constantly telling R&D and manufacturing and other areas what they cannot do. In fact, in one of the companies that I work with, uh, it's one of the very, very large medical device companies, they refer to their regulatory folks as anti-sales, anti-sales. And I just, I just refuse to take that approach. So with the companies that I work with, I will never be the regulatory police. I will never tell them what they cannot do. Instead, I will tell them what they can do, and in most cases, all the different, re the, 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 the different ways that they can do it. In other words, to me, Sean, there's nothing in the regulatory world that's black and white. There are an infinite number of shades of gray, and there's always at least more than one, usually multiple ways to do something. Um, so don't be the regulatory p police. Don't use FDA or regulation as an excuse to hold us back. Regrettably, Sean, I think regulation has become a convenient excuse for a lot of people to use to hide behind. And I'll give you a quick example. One of the cool things about my job is uh, I get to walk into lots of different companies, and I'll go into 
R&D or manufacturing or wherever it is, and I'll see they're doing a particular test, and I'll say, why are you doing this test? And they'll say, because, you know, FDA or somebody tells us that we have to. And I say, okay, fair enough, but if FDA didn't tell you you had to do it, would you do it? Absolutely not. It provides no useful value whatsoever. On the other hand, I'll walk into those same companies and I'll see they're not doing a particular test that I, as a professional biomedical engineer, think they should be doing, and I'll ask them why they're not doing it. They'll say, because nobody told us that we have to. So regrettably, Sean, and again, it pains me to say this because I'm very proud of this industry and you know, I've been doing this now for 25 years, but regulation has become a convenient excuse for many people uh, to justify not just what they're doing, but what they're not doing and why. And this is another thing that differentiates my approach. I take a very commonsensical approach to, to regulation. In other words, I never begin with what the regulation says. I always begin with the biology and the engineering. And once we get the biology and engineering in order, then the regulation can easily follow. So that's what I mean by, uh, by uh, don't be the regulatory police, Sean. Yeah, and that's definitely seemed to be a, a great strategy. So we got through the first eight uh, very you know, uh, quickly, we're going to move even quicker on the, the next seven. I want to run through these. Uh, Mike, if you could provide a sentence, maybe two on each one, and uh, I think we'll come in uh, as expected on, on time. Uh, so the next one, think globally. Think globally. So what we're talking about here, Sean, is international regulatory strategy. I see a lot of companies <coughs> – pardon me. I see a lot of companies um, – uh, bring a device onto the market in one place, and then when we, they go to the second place, they find out that that second place wants a piece of information that the first place didn't want, and therefore they have to do a bunch of testing, in some cases uh, an entire clinical trial over again. Ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. Very time-consuming, very expensive, very rookie mistake. So that can be easily avoided by developing your international regulatory strategy in advance uh, to make sure that you identify all of the regulatory requirements um, and the reimbursement requirements as well, by the way, in the first three or four or five places that you want to deal with in, uh, in the, on the globe. Okay, perfect. The next one, don't reinvent the wheel. Yeah, this is getting into the, the, the slowly growing increase in real-world evidence as opposed to a randomized clinical trial. Quite frankly, I see a lot of companies doing clinical trials where they are simply not justified because there's already a ton of evidence or data from that particular product being used off-label. FDA is becoming a little bit more receptive. It's still not a slam dunk, but they are becoming more receptive to considering real-world evidence in lieu of uh, a randomized clinical trial. And so if you have a product on the market, either here in the United States or in some cases, if you have a product already on the market elsewhere in the world, you might consider using some of that real-world evidence in addition to or perhaps even in lieu of your clinical trial burden for bringing the product onto the market here in the U.S. or doing a label expansion. Okay, the next one's one you already commented on uh, earlier. Don't just copy others. Yeah, I see so many people, they, they will uh, bring a device onto the market as a 510K. I, I talked to somebody recently, and they said, uh, you know, they said they're bringing their new device onto the market as a 510K, and I asked them why. And quite literally, Sean, their response was, well, do, do we have another option? So a lot of people think, you know, that the 510K is the most popular option here in the U.S. because it's the best. I do not make such an assumption. 
you know, McDonald's is one of the most successful uh, restaurants in the world. Is it because they make a good hamburger? Not so much. So just because a lot of people use the 510K certainly doesn't mean it's your, your best option, and it's absolutely not doesn't necessarily mean it's your only option. You need to evaluate all of your different options and your advantages and disadvantages to each in order to determine which is the best for you. And I think this next one is exactly what you were just saying. Know all your options. That's exactly right. Know what all of your different options are and the advantages and disadvantages to each. Okay, one, the next one, don't be myopic about risk. Yeah, you know, uh, you, you may know, Sean, I'm a subject matter expert for the FDA in several different areas, one of them being risk. I think that the uh, traditional approaches to risk, including the ISO standards and even the FDA, you know, uh, approaches to risk are very, very, very limited at best. So I developed a, a whole different approach to risk. It's what, my, it's what I call my three-bucket approach. Bottom line, risk is a very, very broad term, and uh, you have to address, you have to mitigate all the different forms of risks in order to maximize your probability of successfully getting your product onto the market and keeping it onto the market once you get it there. Okay, and this next one is probably the one that, that raised an eyebrow with me, the most interesting, uh, so I'll be curious to hear your, your explanation. New is not necessarily your friend. <laughs> Yeah, regrettably, Sean, from a regulatory perspective, that is true. You know, it is much easier for companies to bring products onto the market that are me-toos, whether it's a 510K or a PMA. And by the way, even in the PMA world, we have a ton of me-toos, as opposed to a product that is truly new or novel. Um, but here's my quick advice on that. Oftentimes when I go to the, to the FDA with a product that is new or novel, the first thing I say is, look, yes, this is new. There is nothing like it. However, let's deconstruct the technology and let's break it down into its individual components and let's compare it to what we already have out there. Because usually when you do that, uh, you can find similarities in other products and other technologies. And basically what I'm doing, Sean, is I'm making it much more palatable for the FDA, much more easy for them to swallow that pill as opposed to, you know, if they, if they understand this is, yeah, this is new, but on the other hand, it's really not new, as opposed to this is totally new and there's, I think you know what I mean by that. Right, right. So, and then the last one of the top 15 uh, tips, design your label like you design your device. Yeah, again, uh, uh, great, great advice, Sean, even though it came from me. Um, <laughs> it's amazing, you know, how many companies, they spend a lot of time designing their device, but they spend very little, if any time, designing their label. So to me, as a PhD in engineering, design is design. Whether I'm designing a physical widget, a medical device, whether I'm designing a regulatory submission, or whether I'm designing a label, to me, design is design. So design your label just like you design your device in the sense of, you know, the wordsmithing and so on. And uh, try to learn, you know, there's a, there's a tagline from a book. It's not what you say that matters. It's what people hear. It's not what you say that matters. It's what people hear. Politicians are very good at this. Regulatory professionals, the best ones, are also very good at this. Most of them are not, but the best ones are. So design your label so that it reads one way, 
but your users, be they clinicians or surgeons or nurses or in some cases even individual patients, um, make sure that they, uh, that they understand. Uh, well, I don't mean understand. Um, <laughs> make sure that, uh, that, that uh, you design your label like you design your device. It's just very difficult to, to, to explain these things so, so quickly, but I'm doing the best we can. No, I appreciate it, and uh, I hope, I hope uh, all of our listeners stuck with us for the entire 15. And uh, for those who did, uh, if you have any questions about any of them or maybe a few of them, if you'd like to hear them expanded, uh, we could certainly do that in an upcoming podcast. Just send your questions out to me through the mpomag.com website or reach out to me at the email address below. For Mike Drews, I'd like to thank you for joining us once again for another Mike on MedTech. And until next time, this has been Sean Fenske for MPO. Saying goodbye. Goodbye.